I was listening to a James Cameron podcast interview from 2018, and the hosts brought up an Albert Einstein quote to sum up Cameron's career. The origin of all great art and science is the same thing. It's the sense of wonder and mystery. After researching his life for... (laughs) really a month straight, I kid you not, I can honestly say that I agree with this use of said quote. I cannot think of a filmmaker whose work has resonated in the halls of human emotion and cutting edge science, technology, and the moral questions associated with it all more than him. His life from early childhood on is this mosaic of pursuits in art history, painting, sci-fi, writing his own sci-fi, and in the practical, the physical, that's precisely what his films evoke, wonder and mystery, both of which are tied inextricably to tragedy and to humanity. In the same interview, he is asked why he had been compelled in 2012 to go down to the deepest part of the world's oceans, the Mariana Trench, by himself in a sphere-shaped sub try saying that five times fast, he had a hand in designing. And his response? That a child would have never asked him that. And it reminded me of another Einstein quote, the one that goes, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. Cameron could. He's always been able to do that. And the main criticism I hear of his work, particularly 1997's Titanic, which is the reason we're all here, is that perhaps his scripts are too earnest, perhaps some of his inventions or his characters are too on the nose. But I've always felt that some people just sort of fear that level of earnestness, you know, a fear of the elemental emotions that drive us all. Universality makes academics especially very nervous, (laughs) and I can speak uh, to this from experience. James Cameron puts ordinary people a waitress in Terminator, oil rig workers in The Abyss, a penniless artist in Titanic, a former Marine in Avatar, into extraordinary situations that expose humanity's weakest spots. A six-year-old understands that. So does a 30-year-old. So does an 80-year-old. Most biographies and most podcast episodes about Cameron open very dramatically with a scene from his subdive in 1995, the moment he sees Titanic for the first time, the dive in which he gets, or series of dives in which he gets footage for the framing device on the film. They then pivot back to his childhood, to the wildness and pureness of the Canadian wilderness, and also forward to the Mariana Trench moment to Avatar. And like a U.S. survey course in high school that bleeds anything after 1980, say, into one day, his post-Titanic life seems an afterthought in this script of his life that has become sort of accepted. He makes Avatar sails into some sort of horizon. Now he's in New Zealand, ensconced in Avatar. But I was surprised by what I found. Titanic is not the end of this story. It is neither Cameron's origin story or any sort of final chapter. It's not even really that late of a chapter in the book of his life, sticking with that analogy. It's perhaps more a mission statement, Titanic is, that has informed his life since and has informed his efforts in, among many other pursuits, 
the exploration and the conservation of the deepest parts of the ocean, the wildest parts of the world. I'm LA Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. We are going back to 1997. Our first stop is to learn about the man who took us back to Titanic. This is episode nine, the innovation and the environmentalism of James Cameron. James Cameron is a Canadian, born August of 1954 in Chippewa, Ontario, sandwiched in between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. He was the eldest of five, born to Philip, an engineer in the paper industry who worked his way through college as a nickel miner, that's hard work, (laughs) and Shirley, who drove stock cars in a powder puff derby, once won an award for her war bond painting of a city in flames, and with three kids at home under the age of eight, joined the Canadian Women's Army Corps, leaving on the weekends in her fatigues and combat boots. Is it a wonder that Cameron's female heroines are so badass? Shirley has claimed she's bewildered that they might be modeled after her. Shirley says that her son, Jim, And I'm going to refer to him as Jim from this point on. I listened to an entire series, narrative series of podcast episodes about his life, and they referred to him as James the entire time. And it felt so unnatural (laughs) because from what I know, his friends call him Jim. Jim rolls off the tongue better here. I hope that's okay. James Cameron, Jim Cameron, if you have a problem with that, call me, let me know. I'll change it. (laughs) So Shirley says her son Jim strode into his 18-month appointment and shook the doctor's hand, the pediatrician's hand, and said, how do you do? After reading about him, guys, I believe this. In first grade, Jim's teacher calls his parents and says, we have a problem. He can't read. (laughs) Shirley Cameron says, that's ridiculous. My son's been reading already for a long time. Turns out that Jim was upset because the class was reading books like Sea Spot Run. It was too simple for him in first grade. And he proceeded to go to the teacher's desk at one point, pick up a book about dinosaurs that was sitting on her desk and read an entry about the Pleistocene era when he's probably around, I guess, five or six at this point. So suffice to say, he was <laughs> skipped ahead. Uh, in the middle of second grade, he moved to third and so on. Uh, this seemed to happen several times. So he ended up very young for his grade. He went to sleep with Niagara Falls thundering in the background in his ears. I've only been there once, and I was a child, but I remember the sound of those falls, his reverberation, echo. And I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, when you're in a bathroom, you close the door and maybe you turn the bathtub on. If there's any water in your ears, if your ears are stuffed up at all, 
the water sort of compels the water in your body and you feel a thundering, like a pulsing in your ears. And I think that's how it feels to live near falls like that because the water is drawn to the water in a a human body. Anyway, (laughs) I'm the furthest thing from a scientist, but it's always struck me that water sort of attracts water that way. So he grows up with this water. He goes skin diving in Chippewa Creek. And I think it's very interesting that in Titanic, Jack Dawson is from Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. There's the Chippewa, and then there's also the falls. And no proof of this. It seems like a nod to me. But Chippewa Creek was actually more a rushing river. (laughs) And he once slipped off an algae-covered board down a hundred-foot cliff and caught a tree limb, luckily, to survive. He never told his mother that as a child, I don't think. He ran through forests, sent tiny animals deep underwater in homemade diving bells. He watched Jacques Cousteau documentaries on television. And Jacques Cousteau, incidentally, died the year Titanic came out in 97. Jim founded the Science Club at his school. He once paid a bully to protect him by doing the bully's homework. Some amount of innocence was lost in 1962 when he stumbled upon instructions his parents had out for a fall fallout shelter. This was the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and from there he buried himself in science fiction. He began writing it himself already, became, I'm sure as many children of that era did, obsessed with apocalyptic scenarios. On the weekends, the family traveled to the Royal Ontario Museum, and he'd sketch the mummies there. He won a local design contest. He painted murals on bank windows at Halloween. He pulled his lunch money to see movies, came home and tried to recreate what he'd seen in Godzilla or Dr. Shivago. Jim was a loner who played with his pet lizard Iggy, (laughs) did not play ball, played with his pet lizard. And to note, Leonardo DiCaprio famously brought his pet lizard on the set of Titanic. It's this great story where the choreographer for the third class dancing scene was trying to get Leo apparently to practice his moves. And um, she was always angry if she had to go looking for him and knock on his trailer door because she was scared of the lizard. And back to Jim. (laughs) His teenage years, if you lay them out, all of this informs his filmmaking. You lay out a pretty literal outline for his future. Wildness, the roaming around as a child, the adventure and sense of it, art, science fiction, exploration, ingenuity, and despite being what we might deem, quote, a nerd, an intense physicality. I think when we label people nerds, dorks, (laughs) you know, indoor kids, he was anything but an indoor kid. He was a nerd, and he probably proudly calls himself that, I do. But he was not an indoor kid. There is an intense physicality to his experiences as a child in Canada. He once convinced an entire group of kids to build an airplane for him. But what about the water? The water... I know you want to know about the water. He grew up hundreds of miles from salt water, of course, but he convinced his dad to drive him to the YMCA in Buffalo, New York for scuba lessons in a pool. And here I want to mention that there is a narrative about his father, Philip. There is an entire podcast series called Blockbuster that was written 
and and it's partially scripted, um, actually all scripted. And the whole narrative crux of this podcast kind of exploration of, of Cameron's life is that he worked his entire life to please his father and that the pursuit of that informs everything that he does, that his father was disappointed in him. And I, oh, it was very nerve wracking to listen to that, to see someone's life boiled down to something so reductive. And after reading about James Cameron for a long time, I have to tell you, I don't think it's an accurate narrative. I mean, obviously, this is his personal life, and it's not really any of our business. I also think it's really dangerous journalism and or history to pin that kind of narrative on somebody that you don't know (laughs) personally. It also takes away James Cameron's agency, if you say, oh, he pursued, you know, this career because he was trying to, you know, earn his father's love. I mean, what person doesn't have some sort of head butting with their parents when they're a teenager, particularly? And who knows what their relationship has been over the years, but I don't think that just because James Cameron doesn't become an engineer like his father, that that should be some sort of primary way in which we talk about his life and career. So I have to say that angered me, obviously, as you can see, I'm worked up about it. What's really important at this juncture, this is why I bring it up, is to show that his dad is really supportive and offers this time commitment of driving him all the way to Buffalo, New York through treacherous weather often so that he can train in scuba. And he's in a pool at the Y in a course that is training sort of with military precision, mostly with adults, not kids. A lot of people that are taking this course are people that are training for, you know, rescue operations, that sort of thing. Scuba diving wasn't really a sport or a leisure activity at this point. Learning how to dive uh, was taught with a military precision, with very aggressive tactics, like you know, grabbing someone's face apparatus off so that they can't, you know, breathe properly. It's intense. I know I've used that word seven times. So that kind of training is going to help James Cameron much later on in his career when he's in underwater circumstances. He goes all in. He jumps into this pool in the Y and he's learning alongside these adults, which I think is pretty incredible. His first dive outside the pool was in Chippewa Creek, held by a rope around his waist. He was held by a rope around his waist and uh, his dad with the other end on the dock. So here Philip is again. And by all accounts, Philip Cameron was is a, quite a masculine, traditional man. He's an engineer. But there he was on that dock holding that rope. And as a parent myself, I can tell you that those moments are really important. In 1968, Jim saw 2001 A Space Odyssey in the cinema, and the first whispers of filmmaking circled his head, began to obsess him. He went back again and again to see it, just as I would his film in 1997, but for completely different reasons. He studied the effects up close in 2001, realizing that Stanley Kubrick had used something called front projection, in which the background image is projected onto both the performer and a highly reflective background screen bouncing off the screen and into the lens of the camera. He and a friend got a Super 8 camera and began to build spaceship models. 
At some point in his teenage years, he also got his hands on A Night to Remember, but obviously more on that later. His dad was transferred to Orange County, California, when Jim was 17. They bought a house in Brea on a hill just 25 minutes from the ocean. He and his brother Mike, who we'll also return to shortly, would go shore diving off the beaches of Orange County. Jim enrolled at Fullerton Junior College, but it was kind of a lackluster period for him. In 1972, he hitchhiked from LA to Vancouver to Niagara with an old friend. Jim painted a gonzo freeway prop, a giant photorealistic hand with its thumb sticking out. This is the early 70s after all. These are the stories that we want. The stories I want. His old Canadian stomping grounds had lost their glow, though, apparently, and he did head back to the West Coast where he went to school and worked as a precision tool and die machinist. He knew how to work, how to use his hands. He seemingly always has. And this is a physical part of his intellect, which is a crucial thing to remember, particularly when we talk about the making of some of his films. And next week, when we talk in great detail about the making of Titanic, there is an acute physicality to visual effects and, and, and how they're done, or at least it was in this era. I'm going to discuss some of that next week. So kind of hold that thought. In the 70s, Jim had long blonde hair and a reddish beard. You should go Google photos of him and look, he's kind of a hippie guy <laughs> and very handsome. He painted an emotional portrait of a Vietnam War prisoner gripping prison bars that became a POW MIA billboard. He worked as a janitor, truck driver for a school district, and his girlfriend, soon his wife, was a waitress at a Bob's Big Boy. At night, he wrote and painted, but, and this is something that most biographies get wrong because they gloss over, but he got married in his early 20s, settled down a little bit, or at least tried to, to a certain extent, tried to fit into a kind of suburban mold that had been laid out before him. I heard him speak about this period of his life in a, a recent podcast interview on um, an interview on Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast. He said that by age 23, 24, he sort of had enough of that life. One of my favorite stories about him from this period is that he would, on the weekends when he had time, he seems working these very, you know, blue collar jobs. He's driving a truck. He's working long hours. But on the weekends, he would drive to USC and he would go to the library and he would find graduate theses of students at USC who had done research on visual effects, uh, film studies, and he would photocopy all this work. He would photocopy essentially an entire curriculum <laughs> that he made for himself in film studies and visual effects. And he read and he taught himself really cutting edge stuff that was coming out of the USC film school. And instead of, you know, paying the money and going to that school, he pretty much taught himself the courses. So I don't know. I love that. It's a lot of ingenuity and a lot of work. You hear that story and you think, oh, is that the easy way out? That is not the easy way out. Teaching yourself, committing the time to immerse yourself in that information and, and to teach it to yourself, that's not the easy way out. That's pretty 
pretty intense. And uh, I love that story. In the sort of script that journalists have concocted of Cameron's life, there is this moment in 1977 when he sees Star Wars in a movie theater and he decides to finally put all of his interests and passions into a real film project. I think the narrative here is that, oh, he sees that the type of science fiction he's been interested in writing and the type of special effects he's been interested in creating is mainstream now and doable and that that inspires him. And I don't think that anything ever happens in one moment, but I think single moments can be inspirational. So definitely possible that that this narrative is completely true. And and while, you know, my least favorite thing in the world is to reinforce a tired narrative, I really couldn't find anything to the contrary on this. I do think it was really important to him. So with some friends, he gets to work on a film called Xenogenesis. And already the Jim Cameron we know is here in the plot. It's about a search for a planet on which to restart humanity. The set was cardboard. And it was funded by a group of dentists that were looking for an investment. Yes, dentists. (laughs) They rented a camera, taught themselves how to use it. It was essentially an experimental demo reel. It never became a full film. But Jim Cameron takes this demo reel to Roger Corman's New World Pictures. And here certainly is another Genesis time era. I like to say time, not moment. I just, again, I don't think things happen in a moment. History is not made in a moment. It's a process. And Jim was certainly part of a process coming into Roger Corman's studio. A brief history of Roger Corman. He made over 400 films, claimed to have filmed Little Shop of Horrors, notably in two days, known for exploitation films, but also for sci-fi and even at one point, a thoughtful anti-segregation film starring William Shatner. Random. He also distributed foreign art films in the United States, the films of Fellini and Kurosawa and Bergman. And his low-budget productions launched the careers of Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Ron Howard, Jack Nicholson, Peter Bogdanovich. He basically hired super young people and paid them next to nothing but let them learn and work and be in the milieu. And this is what I mean by process. Nothing happens in a moment. In the 1970s, Hollywood discovered genre films like Jaws, like Star Wars. These had been relegated to the B-movies until now, but money was being thrown at them. People like Corman were honestly a little pissed off (laughs) that suddenly Hollywood had discovered what they'd been doing all along. So Corman was making a response to Star Wars, a film called Battle Beyond the Stars, a sci-fi reimagining of The Seven Samurai starring Richard Thomas of the Waltons and George Pappard. And if you want to imagine George Pappard, just imagine Rick Dalton in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I can't start going on film history tangents like this or this will actually be a 17-hour podcast. Also, to note, James Horner is doing the music for this movie, and we'll hear, pardon the pun, a lot more from him next week. Cameron screens, so he screens his footage from his demo reel, and he's hired on at the Corman studio. He meets Gail Ann Hurd, who's working as the production assistant for Corman at the time. He 
kind of enters a, a cadre of young people working at this studio, makes friends, is part of a scene there. He designs the hero ship run by a female robot named Nell for this Battle Beyond the Stars. The ship is warrior-shaped, graceful, streamlined, very feminine. He introduces Corman to front projection, basically makes a job for himself as an art director and quadruples his salary through negotiations. All of those hours spent bent over the photocopies from the USC library are paying off. He is fired twice by Roger Corman, but Corman couldn't do it without him. So each time he begged for Cameron to come back. The connections he made at New World Pictures were important, it seems, to Jim Cameron. He would hire people from this crew on a lot of his future films. Also at New World, he meets a young Texan named Bill Paxton, who is looking for work and paints sets for him. R.I.P. Bill Baxton. We'll talk about him more next week. He works on basically creating these sets from nothing. He uses egg cartons and metallic paint to create the walls of a spaceship. He puts mealworms on a fake arm and electrifies them to try to get them to move for this scene to create the scene of like, you know, maggots on a bleeding arm that's been torn off. Well, <laughs> uh, but it is these effects he's creating that start to turn heads in a good way. And one day, a producer named, I'm going to butcher this name, Ovidio Asinitis, I think I got it, a B-movie producer from Rome, uh, actually comes through the studio and he plucks Jim Cameron out and asks him to be the director on Piranha 2, the low-budget sequel to Piranha 1. But here's the thing. He, Asinitis, actually had quite a reputation for doing one particular thing, which was hiring a young green American director to be the sort of face of a film so that he could have connections to Warner Brothers, to American distributors. But really, he wanted to direct these films. And so this wasn't the first time he'd done what's about to happen. So Cameron goes to Jamaica, of all places, to scout locations, get filming ready. And this is extremely low budget movie. At one point, they're using a morgue in Jamaica as a set. And he has to ask people working at the morgue to move dead bodies behind a wall so that they can shoot. So this is traumatic. (laughs) I, I mean, I think about a moment like that, a moment like that would stick with me for the rest of my life. So, but it's, it's also traumatic because just a couple of weeks into filming, Asinitis basically fires Cameron and says, I'm going to take over. You know, you're not getting the shots I want as the excuse he uses, but Cameron's dedicated. He's working hard. This is his first chance to direct. He's been down there in Jamaica working hard. So that's not the case. Really, you know, just want, Asinitis just wants to take over the production. Long story short, James Cameron's name is on this film, Piranha 2 The Spawning, but he actually did not work as director for most of the filming. He didn't have any creative control over the final cut, over the movie really at all. He actually was in Italy uh, with 
because uh, Italy is where they uh, were shooting a lot of the interior scenes. Um, that's where Asinitis was from. And at one point he was in Italy living off of basically nothing because he was being paid very little. He had a hotel room. He was eating old rolls off of food carts from other hotel guests. That's how poor he was at this point. And I should also mention that he does have a marriage, like I said, in his early 20s to a woman named Sharon. But that's pretty much over at this point from what I understand. So he's in Italy. He's fighting with Asinitis to have some sort of say over the final cut of Piranha 2. He even sneaks into the editing room at night to try to edit this movie, but his cut is not what ends up making it into onto the screen. So in the middle of this horrible Piranha 2 Italy era, he gets sick. He has a fever. He holds up in his hotel room to just sweat out the fever. And in the middle of the night has a dream that is essentially the plot of the Terminator. For something that is such a low point for him, the sort of fall of the dream of this first movie he's directing, it becomes this spark for him to make something that comes completely from his mind. I think this dream is, at this point in his life, very much a product of everything. <laughs> the All the sci-fi, all the art, the images that run constantly through his brain, all the long nights at New World Pictures working so hard that he slept on a cot in the corner of the room, all of the construction of, you know, egg crate spaceship walls. You work that hard and you sleep that little and you are that passionate about being in the conversation and creating and you get a dream like this. It makes perfect sense. So he goes back to Hollywood and he's living off of Big Mac coupons that his mom would send him. <laughs> And he writes the script for The Terminator. He sells the rights to Gail Ann Hurt, his old friend from Roger Corman's studio, for $1 with the promise that he would be allowed to direct, that they would shop the picture around to studios and he would be the director. She's also listed as a screenwriter, which Jim is apparently still a little sore about because this was ceremonial that she was listed as a screenwriter. And he wants people to know that he wrote Sarah Connor in Terminator, this strong female character that he wrote her. Heard admits he was at this time, quote, fearless in thinking a strong woman is not going to turn the men off. And I should mention to you that during this period, he and Heard began a romantic relationship as well. They seem like they were very evenly matched by all accounts. She's very adventurous, whip smart, um, you know, just as brilliant in her work and and dedication and passion to what she did as he was. So they seemed very evenly matched. So they shop the movie around and a small outfit called Hemdale Pictures agrees to make it with some financial help from Orion and HBO. And he meets Arnold Schwarzenegger at a lunch meeting and notoriously, you know, tries to convince him to be the Terminator, sketches him as the Terminator. 
and sends these sketches to Arnold. And the thing is, James Cameron is an artist. And it's strange that most people are so surprised when they hear that he did Jack sketches in Titanic. It's not weird at all, because he's absolutely an artist. At this time, to pay the bills, he's also writing Rambo 2, which the final the final rewrites on that eventually went to Sylvester Stallone, which is a sore spot for Jim Cameron as well. And at this time, he also begins work on a treatment for Alien 2, a sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien. Of course, that would eventually become his Aliens. On the set of Terminator, he demonstrates stunts with no padding. He sort of establishes reputation as a director that puts everything on the line and demands everything from everybody on set. He's still working with a relatively low budget, particularly compared to budgets that he would have in the future. He puts everything into this new genre he felt he was creating, and he was, this tech noir, something that became so commonplace after. It was new and strange then, The Terminator, and Orion held only one press screening, terrified that critics would gut it. Cameron was a bit ahead of his time with Terminator, this tale of a cyborg assassin, these questions of artificial intelligence and their power and potential dominance, and the dangers of the exponential growth of technology, this idea that has become a theme for most of his films that it is not necessarily technology and machines that could destroy us, but how we use them could. But this movie is fairly successful. It makes $78 million worldwide, and it was a movie that found a lot of success in the very early home video market, so people find this movie. Interesting fact, Harlan Ellison, who is a notorious science fiction writer, claimed that the Terminator copied episodes he'd written for a show called The Outer Limits. So he sued and Orion actually cut him a deal just to avoid having to prolong a legal battle. And his name appears on some cuts of the film. Cameron says openly (laughs) that Ellison was, excuse my French, a parasite who could kiss him in the arse. He didn't use the word arse, though. (laughs) You've probably seen The Terminator. If you haven't seen The Terminator, go watch The Terminator, and also T2, which we'll talk about here shortly. I wish I had time on this podcast to go into a detailed summary and analysis of each one of his films. I don't. But I strongly, if if you're a fan of Titanic and you've never gone back to watch James Cameron's early movies, I I truly, truly think you should. And, And obviously start with Terminator, not Piranha 2, The Spawning. Please don't do that. You make Jim very angry, I think, if you give money to that movie. (laughs) So Jim settles into Hollywood. This kid who cut cardboard and got calluses on his fingers from writing out science fiction plots in lined notebooks. Suddenly he was racing Gail Hurd, his girlfriend, and, and later his second wife, to meetings in a Corvette, and she would be in her Porsche. And he was riding motorcycles in the desert with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So he moves on to Aliens. Remember, he'd been asked to write the script treatment for a sequel to Alien. And because of his success directing The Terminator, they the studio allows him to direct 
aliens. He is working with his wife, Gail Ann Hurd. She is, by all accounts, a very powerful woman. He aligns himself with this idea that a female could be a movie. A powerful female could be a movie. He does this with aliens and Sigourney Weaver, and he would do it a lot more. And we will talk about that in episode three of this little mini series on 1997's Titanic when we talk about the feminism of Rose Dewa Bucator and also of some of his other movie characters. Ripley in Aliens is a mother. She's a warrior. So her gender is her character, but also irrelevant. And I credit that uh, line and analysis to Rebecca Keegan, who wrote The Futurist, which is a biography of James Cameron, a big source for this episode. And her section on aliens is fantastic. So these robotic suits that lend humans their strength in this, They are obviously Cameron's designs, and they become a reality, weirdly, in 2000 when the Pentagon first launches an exoskeleton for a human performance enhancement initiative. And in 2004, a Japanese robotics company produces a loader-like model that nurses could use to lift their patients, and they name it Cyberdyne, which is the name of the firm that builds the robots in the Terminator film. So just a side note too. A Titanic note here. There is an actress named Jeanette Goldstein, who is great friends with Jim Cameron, has worked with him for years. Uh, She is the Irish mother in Titanic who heartbreakingly puts her children to sleep as the ship is sinking and reads them a story. She actually darkened her hair and skin. She's a redhead in Titanic. She darkens her skin and hair to play Vasquez. (laughs) So that doesn't age well, but she is here in this movie. And also interesting side note, she was a bodybuilder in real life. Another interesting side note, she now owns a bra company. I found that out on Twitter. I think it's bras by Jeanette or something like that. So look into that if you're interested. So he films Aliens at Pinewood Studios, which is in... London. And this is where a lot of the Jim Cameron is a tyrant reputation is born as well. He butts heads with this British crew at Pinewood Studios. In the UK, it was different. The studio, Pinewood Studios, where they're filming physically on location, the crew comes with the studio. So Jim's not hiring these people. They work for this studio, they come as a package deal. So Jim is sort of getting used to some of the customs, uh, like breaking for tea at a certain time, you know, cultural differences and how a set is run, that sort of thing. I don't think that anybody is necessarily more to blame than the other, but there was a lot of animosity that built a couple of crew members that walked off the set at one point. I think Cameron eventually gets them back and they eventually reach a little bit of an uneasy truce, but enough to finish off the film. He hires Ray Lovejoy. Lovejoy? Titanic? Lovejoy? Where that came from? Who had cut... 2001, A Space Odyssey. So this is kind of realizing a dream of working with him. But there were different 
there were differences of opinion. These were two men from two very different eras, and they clashed. And editing was haywire. There are these stories of Cameron running down in front of the screen with a broom to show the sound mixers some scenes because they just weren't ready yet. In 1986, uh, the audience for Aliens actually built on Ridley Scott's original, which at this point was unheard of because this was an era before IP, intellectual property, was everything. This is way pre-Marvel dominance era. This was before every third movie that made money at the box office was a sequel or part of a franchise. It also drew in a female audience for a science fiction movie, which was a big deal. This is actually pretty huge. This was validation not just for Cameron's unique brand of artistic nerddom, but also for practical effects that created this intense world and this genre that he was creating, this sort of tech noir. Now, the same year that he is making Aliens... In 1985, Robert Ballard finds the wreck of Titanic. I highly recommend if you haven't yet, you may even want to pause this episode and go back and listen to my Robert Ballard episode if you haven't. I think it's crucial to understand Ballard and the finding of the wreck in order to fully understand James Cameron's relationship to Titanic, his relationship to exploration that we'll, we're about to go into, and some of his, you know, some of the driving forces that puts Jim Cameron on a sub down to Titanic a few years later as well. So actually not a bad idea. If you haven't heard my Ballard episode, I would say pause here, go listen to that, and then come back. And that's a good through line. We don't know, or at least I don't know, I'm sure some people know, I don't know exactly when James Cameron and Robert Ballard met. Robert Ballard writes in his memoirs that James Cameron did contact him in the late 1980s, that he was intrigued and interested in what Ballard was doing, and that they took meetings. So probably happened. I don't hear James Cameron mention that a lot, but can't be sure. One of the reasons that perhaps James Cameron doesn't mention that a lot is that there is this sort of moment, again, (laughs) always I think people seek out a narrative that is kind of a moment of creation, a moment of inspiration, a birth moment for something. And there is this going narrative, and, and James Cameron is very much a part of producing this narrative, that in 1992, he's at his house one day. He pulls a VHS copy of A Night to Remember down, hasn't watched it in a while. He watches it, makes some notes, you know, could do a movie about Titanic, that sort of thing. He opens up the mail that day. There is an invitation for a film screening in the mail, black envelope with rivets, and it's for Treasures of the Deep, shot by an underwater um, a diver, an underwater photographer named Al Gettings, who had gone on a Russian sub down to Titanic and helped produce this documentary. And Al Giddings was someone who we'll talk again about again in a minute, sort of had the reputation as a modern, more modern Cousteau, the new Cousteau. There is this, yeah, this kind of mythology that it is that day, watching A Night to Remember and then getting the invitation to this Titanic movie screening that really implanted the idea in Jim Cameron's brain, the idea that would eventually become 1997's Titanic. 
But I don't buy it all the way. He, like I said, had met with Ballard already. He's obsessed with the idea of the deep ocean since he was a kid and watching those Cousteau documentaries. He is obsessed with the idea of the deep ocean as a frontier, as a sort of outer space. And he'd followed Ballard and the work of people like him. Jim Cameron is not a scientist, but he has a scientist's brain. I think the wheels are turning on this long before this one day in 1992. And so it's not shocking that even before Titanic, he goes underwater. And he also already knew Al Giddings. In 1989, he would make his deep ocean as outer space movie, I think as a direct result of Robert Ballard's finding the Titanic in the mid-1980s and the sparks of inspiration that that provides. But it's not Titanic, (laughs) obviously. It's the abyss. And I will tell you, in Jim Cameron's filmography, the abyss was a big blind spot for me which now I realize is ridiculous because, of course, I needed to know his other water movie. During the early days of the pandemic in 2020, one of the things that I did was just go back and watch movies that had been on my to-watch list for years and years, and The Abyss was one of them. And I wasn't expecting much. I am obviously the world's most devoted Titanic fan. But I never, I hadn't given the rest of Jim Cameron's filmography its due. I went back, I watched it, and I was floored at how much I adored it. I am not typically a science fiction person. I am not typically an 80s or 90s film with (laughs) special effects kind of campy. And it's not my thing. Not at all. But this was, and I'm not going to ruin much of the plot of the movie in what I talk about here for The Abyss, because if you have not seen The Abyss and you are a James Cameron fan, a Titanic film fan, you must watch it to understand, I think, Jim Cameron in the water, to understand where and how he comes to Titanic. All right. That's my spiel, so I'll get back to the facts, but I highly recommend The Abyss. It's oddly emotional and moving. The Abyss began as a short story he wrote when he was 16 after seeing a lecture from a diver about experiments with liquid oxygen. So he made this, a underwater movie with a love story at its center, sounds pretty familiar. Albeit, this is a much more grizzled and realistic one. He turns to blue-collar heroes. These were um, underwater oil rig workers, which, just to note, and Cameron has noted, underwater oil rigging is technically possible, but not practical and not practiced because of prohibitive costs. So he uses them because he thought that scientists weren't commercial enough of protagonists. But also this works in with this theme. He does this with Sarah Connor in The Terminator. He'll do this so many more times of putting very ordinary people like I said, in these truly extraordinary circumstances. So this workaday crew, so to speak, is dragged into taking on a group of Navy SEALs to rescue a U.S. sub that is sinking, that has sunk, carrying 
missiles. And there's another reason why, if you just listened to the Ballard episode or if you've listened to it in the past, this is weird because there is a big Ballard parallel here. Cameron is often turns out to be, you know, weirdly prescient. Ballard, when he found the wreck of Titanic, if you remember, he was actually, we found out years after the fact, working with the Navy on a top secret mission to locate these sunken Cold War era subs. The abyss is an environmental message. Humans go to the darkest part of the ocean and discover that the monster, the alien that they see is actually themselves in many ways. There is this sense that humans have wrecked the environment in irrevocable ways and that human beings might not actually be (laughs) worth saving. And you see this on, again, I don't want to ruin the movie, but you see this on a micro and a kind of macro level in the emotional arcs and the physical arcs of this film. So these aliens of the deep are, they turn out to be not what you'd expect. I don't want to ruin anything. (laughs) There is this idea that they could be the manifestation of Mother Earth. And I think Jim Cameron is very much ahead of his time here as well. I was thinking a lot about this in terms of the film Don't Look Up, which came out on Netflix a few weeks ago, and I discussed it in a special episode I did on Leo's filmography. And obviously in Don't Look Up, there's a comet that is a very thinly veiled representation of climate change. And climate change, for example, isn't something that scientists have been warning us about for only a decade or two. It would be a whole other podcast to cover, but you should know massive corporations like oil companies, ding, 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 like in the abyss, it's an oil company. Well, documents now prove that they knew about evidence of global warming, climate change as early as the late 1980s. Shell, for example, was worried that should the issue of climate change become better known, Public opinion might shift against fossil fuels and towards renewables, (sighs) putting Shell's business model at risk. So they bury this information in the the late 1980s. Just something to think about in terms of Cameron and the script he's writing. Again, very prescient. Just something to think about. Al Giddings, remember him. James Cameron is going to go to his Titanic documentary premiere in 1992, but right now it's 1988. Al Giddings is six foot two, 240 pounds, a former spear fisherman and competitive swimmer who had shot a film, The Deep, in 1977, one of the only films shot underwater and not using the dry for wet uh, location. And he becomes director of photography for The Abyss. Jim Cameron finds uh, use for the never-completed Cherokee nuclear power plant outside Gaffney, South Carolina. He uses the massive cylinder that would have been the nuclear reactor's containment vessel. It's 240 feet in diameter and 80-foot-high walls. He uses this. Imagine... This story of a mystery of the deep, of man's relationship to technology, man's relationship to Earth and its environment, playing out in this would-be nuclear reactor. Gosh, that is just ripe for 
analogy, metaphor, however you want to say it. You'd probably do a whole podcast on that one statement. So they film in these huge tanks. And James Cameron devises, helps to design new diving suits because he wants his actors to A, learn how to dive, and they all are required to, but B, he wants them to, their facial expressions and their mouths to be seen through their helmet. And typical diving equipment, you have the mouthpiece that would block that. So these diving suits run the air through the back of the helmet. This set is a feat of industrial engineering. (laughs) His dad, he wanted him to be an engineer. Well, in practice, if not by law, if you get that reference, wink, huge uh, filtration systems and pumps and 20,000 BTU heaters to warm 7.5 million gallons of water, I'd say, yeah. He's an engineer in practice, if not by law. Like I said, he has these helmets designed so that actors' faces are visible. His helmet is similar, but has two stars on the side. So he's swimming around in this tank looking like some sort of demented Captain America, apparently. To be fair, to be a historian that shows you all the knees and elbows of this. Al Giddings does call the set of the abyss a total dictator system. There is an incident where a producer comes in from California, tries to talk to him, calls him Jimmy, as maybe a bit condescending as he comes on set, and apparently Cameron walks him to the edge of one of the diving platforms and threatens to throw him overboard. So just so you know, I... I certainly don't want to be part of a narrative about James Cameron that he is only his behavior on set. Unfortunately, that's been a narrative written about him. I want to make this episode about so many other things, but I do recognize that that's going on in the background, that he has a reputation for being very hard on people on set, for screaming, for (laughs) firing people and bringing them back so many incidents over the years on this movie. Ed Harris, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio would give interviews about how grueling and troublesome this set was. We'll hear some more about that when we talk next week about the set of Titanic. So I want you to know I'm aware of it and I am not giving James Cameron a pass for any of these behaviors. I just am making an effort to broaden the narrative around him and to show every side of his filmmaking experience. I think a lot of articles, podcasts, biographies tend to focus only on that. And I just didn't want to be part of of reinforcing that narrative of the man. So, so you know, but I'm aware. So his brother, uh, Mike, is employed to build something called the Sea Wasp, a vehicle powerful enough to tow two divers at nearly three knots and nimble enough to rise or descend while allowing the camera operator to stay on the subject. This would be the Cameron brothers. And just so you know, his brother Mike had training um, education as a mechanical engineer and had been working as a mechanical engineer at this point for a while. This would be the brothers' first of five patents on technical filmmaking equipment. Mike was also cast as a drowned corpse in the film. 
A California company called HydroImage made a powerful 1,200-watt lamp called the CPAR. And just so you know, uh, this would go on to be used in the movie Armageddon. It would go on to be used as lighting in National Geographic films and an indoor pool at NASA. Just another example of Cameron being involved in designing something that was prescient or that would be uh, a, a technology that would be used and adapted for many years to come. And we'll see that again. So to film these underwater scenes, they needed this sense of dark endlessness in the water. But of course, in a tank, there's a top of a tank where the sunlight's coming in. So to fix that problem, they floated little propylene. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I've never pronounced that word before in my life. P-R-O-P-Y-L-E-N-E. Propylene beads on top. So the entire top of this tank is just these little floating beads. And apparently cast and crew would find these beads in their hair and their clothes and all parts of their body for many weeks and months to come. There is an incident while filming Uh, the abyss, where Jim Cameron's training in the YMCA pool in Buffalo, New York, comes in very handy. Quick summary, basically, he has an assistant that is supposed to come on his earpiece when he's underwater, way under in the tank, and let him know when his air supply was running low, so he knew to come up, decompress, get more air, that sort of thing. Apparently, the assistant forgot it one day, so he ends up at the very bottom of the tank, without any air. He uh, attempts to sort of free dive or I'm sorry, free rise to the surface, which from what I learned about reading about, I've never scuba, it, um, requires a lot of work in itself. You have to know how to breathe or let air out as you go properly so that your lungs don't explode. So if you're at that depth, you can't just pop back up to the surface. You have to practice certain breathing um, and techniques in order to get yourself to the surface. So he's trying to do that. In the meantime, one of the what they call angel divers that are in the tank to help people in case of an emergency comes up to him, tries to give him some emergency air, doesn't realize that tank is not working. And so he's being given no air. So he essentially has to punch this angel diver so that he can continue to get back up to the surface and save himself. They think he's panicking. He's not panicking. He's using tactics that he learned as a child in this sort of military style training for scuba. So as you probably imagine, he makes it. But it's a very, very scary incident for Cameron. While he's in production on The Abyss, his marriage to Gail Ann Hurd is essentially falling apart. So the marriage plotline between the two main characters in The Abyss is particularly poignant. And I get, I don't want to ruin anything. He had to decompress when he got to the top of the tank after being underneath the water for so many hours of the day. But, and this is <laughs> classic James Cameron, he constantly has to be working. What he would do is he would go look through an acrylic window through a TV playing dailies that would come through for the filming while he was decompressing. So he'd still be in the water, but looking through this little window into a room where someone was playing the dailies for him so that he could look at footage. I think that's a pretty classic Jim Cameron story. 
The water tentacles in the abyss were an early proving ground for CGI. In August of 1989, the box office for the abyss was a little bit underwhelming, but it did win Oscars for special effects and had nominations for art direction and cinematography and sound. In 1989, he marries a director, Catherine Bigelow. This is his third marriage. As you could probably tell, I'm not focusing in on his personal life. I honestly think it's none of my business. And also, I just, you know, I again, I don't want to contribute to the narrative we have in the press of James Cameron, the multiple marriages and the gets angry on set. I just think it's, I, I don't want to be responsible for putting any more weight into that narrative. So then we are to the era of Terminator 2. <laughs> James Cameron famously says he could definitely, quote, be bought for $6 million to do the sequel. Linda Hamilton returns as Sarah Connor and gets 100% ripped to shreds muscles for days. And this is a big deal. Uh, Robert De Niro had won an Oscar for his body changing for Raging Bull, but women didn't typically do this. Time Magazine ran an article called, quote, Why Can't a Woman Be a Man? And dismissed Linda Hamilton here as Rambo in drag. Completely unacceptable. Um, I'm happy to say I don't think a headline that would fly these days. But this is a big deal that she got in shape. And this is a huge precursor for how many movies in the 90s, 2000s, and all the way to today, where female actors are powerful and muscular and have the same physique as men who, you know, get in shape for these action and science fiction movies. And she is really the first. It's kind of incredible. Uh, Mally Flynn, who is a casting director that worked for, with Cameron for years, she would cast Titanic. She finds a young Edward Furlong, complete unknown, she locates, uh, while watching children at the Boys and Girls Club in LA, which that seems a little weird. <laughs> But I guess it's a strategy that worked for finding unknowns. So T2 is obviously a hugely important movie for the elder millennial generation. My husband grew up watching it, went to Blockbuster to rent the VHS again and again. I have so many friends that, you know, when you ask them, put your top 10 movie list together, T2 is on it. And I didn't really understand that for the longest time. Again, my relationship with James Cameron, especially when I was a teenager and young adult, was just so much about Titanic that I missed these earlier moments. But T2 is spectacular and it is an amazing, just as Titanic will be, an amazing combination of digital and practical effects. Going back to his days at Corman Studio, going back to his childhood, this amazingly refreshing combination of pushing, you know, the CG technology and what it could do, but always, always standing on the feet of the practical effects. In T2, the sound of the T-1000 shape-shifting through the metal bars is actually dog food sliding out of a can. And even though it's known for pioneering CGI, 
of the 15 minutes that the T-1000 morphs and heals in the film, only six were actually pure effects. Everything else was achieved through puppets and prosthetics and this symbiosis, like I said, of physical and digital, of which Cameron would become a master. He is... hard to work with again on set. Uh, Some of the crew walk around in t-shirts that say T3 colon not with me. This was the first movie to top 100 million dollars on production costs. So we'll talk about this next week, but Cameron is no stranger to huge budgets and overages. And CG strides made for T2 would actually enable a company called Industrial Light and Magic to make their next project happen, a little movie called Jurassic Park. (laughs) And on the other side of the world, in New Zealand, where Cameron would eventually make a home, a young director named Peter Jackson was also floored by what he saw. In the spring of 1992, Cameron signs an unusual $500 million multi-picture domestic distribution deal with Fox that gave him any, that's 20th Century Fox, uh, that gave him any movie he wanted up to a $70 million budget, and he got to retain ownership of the copyrights to his films. In exchange, Lightstorm, his production company, would have to shoulder its own overhead costs as well as take on any budget overages, which it planned to do so by selling foreign rights to these movies. He got this deal because Terminator 2 made so much freaking money. So he's essentially being handed a series of blank checks. So just to recap where we are, Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, he has established himself as a very successful creator of a science fiction world, of a world that viewers want to immerse themselves in. He has created this whole genre of tech noir, this darker exploration into humanity's relationship to technology, but done in a way that is accessible and entertaining. And that is not an easy combination. (laughs) So in 1992, you also have this moment with Al Giddings. He goes to the premiere of Treasures of the Deep, the Titanic documentary. He's reunited with Giddings. Giddings worked with him on the abyss, called him a dictator, vowed he would never work with him again. But Giddings joins a long list of people who claim they will never work with Cameron again, but absolutely do after some time has passed. And they, according to the lore, just hang out all night in this theater after the screening for Treasures of the Deep and talk Titanic. And Jem looks at Al and says, we have to go. We have to go to Russia. I have to get to Titanic. He and Al Giddings fly to Moscow to meet with Anatoly Sagalovich about chartering his ship, the Keldish. Russians revere their subpilots, and the Keldish was this and is this beast. It's one of the most important 
academic ships in the world. And at this time, in the early 90s, one of the only ships that had subs that could dive to where Titanic rests 13,000 feet below the ocean's surface. They used the codename Big Boat for the endeavor on the Sunday night before they left after touring the ship and getting to know everyone. One of the crew threw a party and 50 people crammed into his apartment, a fifth of vodka at every place setting. And seating was, this isn't funny, seating was segregated with the women in chairs along the wall except for one female scientist scientist named Natalia, and most of the women had to be designated drivers. Well, Anatoly, apparently at the end of this night, shouted, we do it. We make Hollywood movie. And Cameron says at that point, he quote, thought, he says, I quote, thought I was going to die after all the vodka toasts. Cameron drafted a proposal for the Shirshov Institute in Russia, and Sagalovich would come stay at his Malibu home over the next couple of years whenever he was in the country, and they'd play basketball together. And I want to tell you, I ran across a lot for as many stories as there are of Jim Cameron being a tyrant on set and being often, for lack of a better word, mean sometimes. I also ran across just as many, if not more, stories of him welcoming people into his home to stay, who needed a place to stay, or just opening up his kind of life to people to give advice, to offer financial help. So, you know, just keep that in mind. Also around this time, I did not know, he worked on a script for an adaptation of a book called The Minds of Billy Milligan, which is about a rapist who suffers from multiple personality disorder. But the producer who'd sold the rights alleged she'd been cut out of the pre-production process and refused to finalize unless they upped her deal to $1.5 million. Basically, Cameron got a lot more famous after he'd bought these rights and she wanted to take advantage of that. <laughs> he said he didn't, quote, negotiate with terrorists or extortionists so, so she could take a leap if you know what I mean. <laughs> Eventually, this script, The Crowded Room, was floated around. Uh, at one point, Leo was supposedly attached, but it never got made. He wrote Strange Days, which is a movie that his uh, wife, she was his wife for a brief period, I think 89 to 91, Catherine Bigelow directed. This blended science fiction with film noir, and Strange Days explores themes like racism and abuse of power and voyeurism. During all this time, he also stayed close friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who brought him this idea about remaking a French movie called La Totale, which was about a secret agent whose family thinks he's a civil servant. Cameron saw it as sort of an anti-James Bond uh, movie, a reality check on the uber-male fantasy. He, quote, the Arnold Schwarzenegger character still have to answer to a woman when he gets home. I'm not crazy about how he words that, but I do think this idea of breaking up the uber male fantasy of a, a hero like a James Bond or just, you know, a spy action hero is interesting. Cameron would again prove prescient when he chose a Middle Eastern terror cell organization as the villain in True Lies. True Lies is what this film would become, but worried about imitating life imitating fiction. So he made a point to make it as silly 
as possible. After the terrorist attacks in 2001, Cameron abandoned ideas about a sequel. Also at this time, he's working on, so he's, you know, writing, he's working on True Lies, he's uh, working on the proposal for the Titanic expedition. He's got a lot going on behind the scenes as well. Uh, A man named Stan Winston, who he has worked with on visual effects at this point already a lot, was starting to incorporate CG into his shop, and Cameron realized that the future would be seamlessly combining shots like he had sort of already started to pioneer. He pitched to Winston the possibility of having an even bigger shop, basically, that would be staffed by animators, artists from all around the world. And so Winston joins Cameron as the co-founder of a company called Digital Domain, which would be a special effects company. Also around this time, very important to our discussion of Titanic, he meets a woman named Ray Sancini. And they first met when the director boarded a flight to the Cannes Film Festival that she was on. And she was working for a company, Carol Co., that made T2 at the time. And she took Cameron around after the festival to the company's North Carolina studios to scout for too. They had missed flights, comical delays. So they end up spending a ton of time together over the course of this, I think it's probably a weekend, and they become good friends. He confesses that he didn't want to film <laughs> the Termi- uh, Terminator 2 in the South. He'd had such a bad experience uh, with the Abyss in the South, but they got to know each other during that trip. Her father had worked in the space program and she was and is a big science fiction nerd. She had a JD and MBA from UCLA and Cameron hires her to work at Digital Domain. She immediately secures $15 million from IBM, which took a 50% stake and provided, uh, gave them the ability to get started. Ray Sancini is going to be a big part of Titanic. So basically, he's got this bold move to embrace digital compositing and to also embrace this combination of new, exciting CGI and practical effects, which he would never which he's not giving up on. But Digital Domain becomes a number two visual effects house in the world quickly behind industrial light and magic. But before he can make true lies, uh, they realize, Cameron and his production company, Lightstorm, realize there's a really fatal flaw in this big $500 million deal that he's cut with Fox. None of the funding from Fox or Lightstorm's foreign partners, remember Lightstorm was going to make the deal work by distributing these movies on foreign markets. So none of the funding would click in until there was a completion bond in place. This is basically a written contract that, excuse me, that guarantees a movie will be delivered within budget, on schedule, just It's a crucial legal document. But no bond company would cover True Lies without a detailed budget. And it's going to have a large budget, which meant that Cameron (laughs) would need to be way into the pre-production process in order to have the bond have the bond issued essentially they realize at this moment they have assembled this deal with Fox completely backwards they should have locked in 
equity financing first before selling off distribution rights. So Cameron unshockingly fires the architect of this plan and asks Sancini to sort it out. She's his woman in the room. Fox agreed to come in as primary financier and took back the foreign rights to True Lies and to future films. He works with, Cameron works with the new head of Fox's motion picture component, Peter Chernin, who later admitted that True Lies was the kindergarten version of Titanic. (laughs) Sancini becomes president of Lightstorm, and Lightstorm reverts to a more traditional model. Another strong woman that Cameron works with puts his faith in and recognizes the uh, talent of. There we go. Another person that sort of boards the Cameron (laughs) metaphorical ship at this point is John Landau, who was at this point Fox's VP of production. He was fresh off of the set of The Last of the Mohicans. He is also a USC grad and from all accounts, very calm and level-headed person. Cameron loves working with him. He came on after True Lies as Lightstorm's resident producer. So he's also going to play a big part in Titanic and in Avatar. True Lies cost $120 million to make. It did open at number one and made $379 million worldwide. The critics were mixed. I have to say, I recently watched it. It was another pandemic watch for me, and I was pleasantly surprised by how much I loved it. Great comedic turn from Bill Paxton. He's great. Jamie Lee Curtis is fantastic. I'm going to talk about her character a little bit when I talk about James Cameron's writing of feminist characters here in a few weeks. And it's it's a fun movie. It's one of those movies that when it ends, you just, I don't know, have a smile on your face and not because you've had some sort of great emotional, uh, meaningful revelation or anything, but it's just fun. And you think to yourself, yeah, I would rewatch that. It's a, it's a comfort movie, weirdly. I think so. Anyway, my husband's actually never seen it. So I think we may watch it this weekend. I've been in Cameron mode. All right. But most importantly, for where we're going, he tackles a new genre with True Lies. He solidifies his relationship with Fox, with 20th Century Fox, and he's gotten his special effects house off the ground. He, at this point, also writes a Spider-Man script treatment that was widely admired in Hollywood. It's dark with sex scenes and a cursing Spider-Man. This was dark superhero stuff a decade still before The Dark Knight, but it never got made because Carol Coe, which owned the rights, filed for Chapter 11 in 1995 and sort of was revealed at this point that they had had a very tenuous hold on the rights anyway. There had been a lean against them with Sony. So Cameron tries to convince Fox to go after the rights. And Cameron later said they blew it because basically for a few hundred thousand dollars in legal fees, they would have had a $2 billion franchise. I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, look at what was the number one 
movie at the box office this year. If you're a Marvel person, I'm sorry, I'm not a Marvel person. And I have some very distinct um, and passionate opinions about what Marvel has done to the film industry and movies. So I won't get into that here, but uh, it's a lot. So in 2002, Spider-Man, the one with Tobey Maguire, had elements of James Cameron's script uh, including shooters coming out of the wrist. Everyone knows that iconic scene. But Cameron has no script credit. There you go. I know I've said there you go about 30 times. <laughs> so after True Lies, he has doubts about Titanic and weighs it against other films. But Cameron claims, here we go, another moment of inspiration. Claims while he was ruminating, he got a follow-up fax from Anatoly Sagalovich from the Keldish from Russia that said, quote, simply, it is sometimes necessary in life to do something extraordinary. He calls Ray Sancini and says, we're doing this. Diving the wreck was crucial for him. Obviously, he'd gone to Russia to set this up. It was the most important component of putting Titanic together. He wanted to go down there. He admits he'd been obsessed with shipwrecks for years. He has said, quote, I'm an explorer at heart, a filmmaker by trade. I've heard him say in several interviews, jokingly, that he wanted so badly to go down to Titanic that he had to write a love story in order to get himself down there to make this movie. I think he's 20% serious when he says that. I really do. Uh, which would probably anger a whole lot of people that he just, he wrote the perhaps the greatest love story in film history uh, because he wanted to dive down in a sub. There's math. He's a math and a science guy, right? And there is math at the heart of the love story in the script of Titanic. If you were on the Titanic and you were a first class woman, you had a 97% chance of making it. While if you were a third class man, you had a 16% chance. And this is what drove Cameron's original script treatment was this math. He originally imagined that Titanic would cost around $80 million, cue hysterical laughter, and claims he had realistic expectations about a period piece that was a love story and everyone already knew the ending. <laughs> Three years after the Russia trip, he's in the office of Fox's president, Peter Chernin. He brought in a copy of the Illustrated History of the Titanic by Don Lynch and Ken Marshall, flipped to the centerfold image and said, quote, Romeo and Juliet on this ship. Chernin would later recall that the production hell was hell, sorry, was hell. But also he said, quote, creative interactions on that film were hands down the best experience of my career, starting with that meeting. What a moment. I know I talk a lot about how moments don't create historical processes, but like I said earlier, I do think moments can be profound and moving. And imagine this moment, this iconic film that we all recognize and we all have seen. We're all gathered together in this podcast universe right now, probably because of, on some level, this moment where he goes in with this book and shows the studio executive, this 
paint, beautiful painting of Titanic sinking in the water. And the result of this meeting is this movie. It's just as a Titanic person, that's a pretty amazing moment to imagine being on or being a fly on the wall of be incredible. He would also convince him, Chernin, importantly, that he needed to go to the wreck. There would be a $4 million dive budget for these initial dives, which he argued was not that crazy of an amount for pre-production on a big movie and could be sort of siphoned over on paper, at least into the marketing budget, because it would provide so much to for the press to write about and for the actors to discuss and sort of go on the PR circuit with. So he's going to dive the rack. But in order to do that, he needed a 35 millimeter camera that could function at 13,000 feet underwater, where pressure is 5,000 pounds per square inch. Cameron wanted a camera outside the sub that he could pan and tilt and maneuver cinematically. And this is very different than the technology Ballard had gone down with in the 80s. Ballard's you know, camera was essentially what they ended up calling a dope on a rope. So this is this is new stuff camera needs. He would need a remote device and camera housing and an ROV. Remember that from the Ballard episode uh, that he would call Snoop Dogg. <laughs> Similar to Ballard's also would be like a movie prop for the opening scene. See, he would use a camera to film this ROV going through the wreck. He hired Western Space and Marine who'd made the Abyss helmets to work with him. And he also hired his brother, Mike, who was back at Lightstorm working on camera development at a, during a big stretch of this early 90s period. Eventually, 23 companies would contribute to the camera setup, illustrating that often it's not one moment, again, of discovery and invention, but tireless work of many in something like this. At one point, Mike was calling Anatoly Sagalovich in Russia asking about some of the components of the ship, the Keldish, of the subs, the mirrors, trying to figure out what kind of power they would have access, what the setup would be for their equipment. And at one point, apparently, Anatoly just says, Mike, mirror has big power. No problem. And hung up the phone. Great moment. They also did a preliminary expedition to Truk Lagoon in the Palau Islands in Micronesia. This is basically an underwater graveyard with naval casualties from World War II. They tested cameras and lighting and the feel of shooting an underwater wreck. Now, here, <laughs> here's a note on methodology and where we're going from here. For a very detailed very detailed play-by-play of what these expeditions in 95 looked like on the Keldish of Cameron first discovering the actual, you know, look and feel of the wreck, of diving the wreck, of the technical aspects of what kind of footage he got and how he viewed that expedition. Please read the segment on it in Rebecca Keegan's book, The Futurist, which is a biography of Cameron. It was a Again, like I said, a huge source for this episode. And so if you're wanting something super detailed on that, please go see her section in The Futurist. It's fantastic. Here, it's going to be, unfortunately, you know, a much smaller summary. And also at this point, you may be wondering, oh, 
this episode's already an hour and a half long. Are we going to also see Cameron through to the all of the making of Titanic in this? Not at all. I am actually going to skate over most of the filming of Titanic for this episode because that is next week in which I will detail the whole journey through, you know, the chowder poisoning in Nova Scotia in the early part of filming with the present day scenes to the beach in Rosarito, Mexico, where they construct Titanic and all of these sets and all of the filming and budgetary issues. It's going to be a wild ride. So that's not in this episode. So don't worry. (laughs) I won't. I'm going to seem like I'm rushing through the filming and the making of Titanic here, but I, it's all coming. See Rebecca Keegan's book for really detailed information, though, if that's what you're looking for right this minute. So the 1995 Keldish expedition, um, no one was allowed to use the word Titanic, and punishment was enforceable, Rebecca Keegan says that, by Lewis Abernathy, who would go on to play Lewis in Titanic and spout my husband's favorite line from Titanic. She popped out a couple of kids. Anyway. So apparently Louis Abernathy was sort of the unofficial enforcer of this friend of Cameron's who many people who know Cameron uh, say is someone that represents Cameron's wilder side. He's a close personal friend who Mike and Jim literally met on a curb in the Channel Islands and had been on the rocks with at one point because (laughs) Abernathy is also a screenwriter was writing and selling a script that bore some resemblance to the abyss. But he always he always circled back and got back in the good graces of the Cameron brothers and and Jim Cameron particularly. And he always put himself to work, it seems. And on this expedition, he was putting together dive documentation package with sketches and diagrams. He also viewed himself as sort of the social director of life aboard the Keldish as the Russian crew and the Americans got to know one another on the Keldish. Linda Hamilton was also along for the first part of the outfitting of the ship. They had been at this point dating since T2 and on the Keldish, Cameron proposed. They also by now had a daughter named Josephine, as in come Josephine, my flying machine. Side note, also my daughter's middle name. Mir One Uh, which is one of the subs, got the camera, the housing, and a lighting boom. Mir 2, the other sub, got the ROV and carried the majority of the lights. Cameron's assistant on the Keldish stocked lean cuisines for him in the freezers because the food was so unpredictable and mostly consisted of mystery meat. The Keldish was the largest research vessel in the world at that point, 422 feet long and with a crew of 130, a pool. Basketball, vodka stills. Cameron had a conference room converted into a projection suite where he would examine test footage from shallow dives as they got ready. Cameron's crew brought on detailed models of the ship and the mirrors, and Cameron and the Russian crew spent hours practicing practicing maneuvers for uh, on the models uh, with a little lipstick cam. So they were practicing how they would maneuver everything once they were actually below. They would only get 12 minutes of film each time they would went down to Titanic, so they really had to plan things out. Each trip down took about 10 hours round trip. Cameron went into a mere sub for the first time on September 8th, 19. 
Amir's is the size of a cement mixer. The pilot navigated through a window six inches in diameter. (laughs) So navigating a wreck, a very dangerous wreck to navigate because of cables and broken steel and lots of sharp edges. Just through that little window. It's crazy to think. Cameron's first glance was a wall of steel covered in rivets. All the way back to that piece of mail he received. He probably felt very full circle in that moment. Coming straight at him, 10 feet ahead, it was a close call in one of the first dives. He and his the other two people on his sub almost became part of the wreck of Titanic as well. He knew the wreck like an astronaut landing on the moon because he had studied the models and the diagrams and the blueprints so heavily. It was daunting, but he had it memorized and was felt ready for this moment. And he was. He was emotional after getting back to his cabin that first night. Similar to if you listen to the Robert Ballard episode, how Robert Ballard felt after he realized he'd actually seen the wreck, sort of a, you know, waking up moment of realizing the power of the place that you're at. In this emotional moment, Cameron says he promised himself he wouldn't think of himself as an astronaut anymore. He would think of himself as someone coming to play proper tribute to the tragedy that had happened at the site. He took 11 more dives and eventually even took his ROV in, which he called Snoop Dogg, into the wreck. He hadn't originally planned to, but he gets a lot of great shots that show up in the beginning of the film, including that woodwork fireplace with the crab crawling. No one talks about the fact that he went down there not just for raw footage, but as a filmmaker, he also went down there to understand the aesthetic feel of the whole ship and for the whole film. Funnily, Russians, Russian crew were suspicious of Mike Cameron because he didn't drink with them and was so serious. He got dubbed, uh, nicknamed KGB. It was terrible. He uh, helped his brother Jim load a model of the bow onto the Keldish. It was so big, it forced the crew to weld away a portion of the Keldish staircase. And then it sat in an enclosed deck near the lifeboat. So Cameron was either there working with that model or in his room working on planning. And he is someone I think who can read on something, study something and become an expert pretty quickly. And this is a callback to his Roger Corman days. They would park and had lunch literally on the boat deck of the Titanic in their sub, of course, still in the sub. They had a couple of near miss moments. And again, if you want a detailed, detailed summary of these expeditions, the it's, they're there. And I'm, I'm going to provide a link at the end of this episode to a really detailed reading list about Cameron as well. So those are there if you want them. In the last few dives they did, like I said, get inside Titanic. Their first mission being uh, sneaking the ROV down to G-Deck to try to photograph William Carter's 35 horsepower Renault motor car, which played an important part in the Titanic script, Cameron would continue to look for this car in future expeditions as well. They went to D-Deck, Grand Staircase, Stateroom. In the end, went 98 feet into the ship, the most anyone had been inside the wreck at that point. 
In the spring of 1996, Peter Chernin hadn't even officially greenlit the film, which is insane considering that it would come out in December of 1997. But on May 28th, he greenlit it at $110 million with the understanding that it would be PG-13 and bring on another studio to share the risk. This would be Paramount, which would eventually <laughs> come on but be capped on the budget at $65 million. So they... They got away with the steal and originally wanted Cameron to commit to a summer 1997 release. So a one year turnaround they originally imagined. And some of this is absolutely set up for next week, guys. But he's got Cameron's got his team assembled. Producer John Landau. He's got Ray Sancini at Digital Domain. He's got Digital Domain, his special effects house set up. And now he has this deal with Fox to make this movie. And Fox begins production on the first major studio built since the 1930s, would become known as Fox Baja in Rosarito, Mexico. The Titanic rose there beam by beam on the beach, 90% the real ship's length, 10% taken out like slices of a loaf of bread that still looks the same, and with funnels and lifeboats reduced by 10% to match James Cameron starts to prep this movie. We'll talk about it next week, but it's everything from the details on ceilings to White Star Line China to, <laughs> you know, casting Kate and Leo to, I alluded to it earlier, and it's quite a, a tale to tell, to, you know, ending up poisoned by PCP <laughs> in Nova Scotia at one point. It's quite a ride. And we'll talk about the studio more and the whole production. But what you should know for now is that they started principal photography on the Titanic part of Titanic in Rosarito, Mexico, on September 18th. 1996 with Cal and Rose's suite, one of the interior sets, the paintings, the French paintings being unpacked, and then the drawing scene, the draw me like one of your French girls. Even Cameron's dreams of this pointer of Titanic as he shoots, he dreams he's on the ship. These months in Mexico are the culmination of 10 years of planning and negotiations and writing and dreaming about what this film could be. All the way back to watching Ballard find Titanic, all the way back to watching you know, Jacques Cousteau documentaries. There is a lot to talk about <laughs> on the set. There's a lot to talk about next week about, you know, more on James Cameron, the man and some of his interactions on set, and some of his treatments of people. We will get into that. It's part of the story. There is so much to be said about his leadership and his insistence on the highest order of quality and historic realism on this set, and I'm excited to talk about that. Billy Zane said, quote, there's a kind of film magic that occurs when there is risk, when there's a lot to be lost, and you throw yourself out there. It's fascinating to feed off that energy and give it back. Shooting ran on Titanic into late March of 1997. And think about that. The film would release just nine months later, which really <laughs> makes some sense because when they wrap filming, it's almost like a 
you know, a fetus is handed over to Cameron and that's his baby and he needs to grow the fetus into a full-fledged baby. The film was basically headed into his brain as an incubator now. These days, I don't think an auteur director would be expected to even consider this quick of a turnaround. I was thinking about Martin Scorsese. Uh, Last year, he filmed uh, an adaptation of Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a great book about the FBI and the relationship of uh, Native Americans in Oklahoma to their conservators and some really horrible incidents that occurred, violence against Native Americans in Oklahoma. Actually, Leo's in that movie as well, unshockingly. He does so many films with Scorsese. But I was thinking about that in terms of this. He had so much pre-Scorsese, so much pre-production, years of pre-production. They filmed last summer, I believe. And then I I think maybe it might be coming out this coming, the end of this year, maybe, you know, fall, winter of 2022. So just really crazy to think the short amount of turnaround time that Jim Cameron is given for Titanic. He has his King of the World moment at the Oscars, which I adore. I'm mad that anybody was ever mad about it. And I remember watching those Oscars as a child. I actually went back the other night and watched the entire Oscars. And it was such a wonderful 90s time capsule. And I really was able to transport myself back to being you know, 13 years old and watching as my favorite movie, you know, won these awards. And I just remember the expectation and anticipation. It's just, I I highly recommend if there are things that are your pop culture things, the things you obsess about that have stuck with you for years, go back and watch those original moments around them, you know, whether it be an award show or a concert or I mean, everything's on YouTube. And it's pretty fantastic that we're able to, you know, access these time machine clips for ourselves. So he's 43 when he finishes Titanic. And he told a journalist that he was going to spend the next year making sandcastles in the backyard with his daughter. He had the means and the time to indulge his wanderlust, which was no doubt fueled by his experiences diving Titanic. He has a falling out with digital domain. He had founded it with Stan Winston and Scott Ross to influence CG research and development, and then to utilize the company's advancements to make his own movies better, just as George Lucas had done with Industrial Light and Magic in the 1980s. But tensions grew after Titanic, and this climaxes in this board meeting in 1998. They had won an Oscar for Titanic, but had been really overwhelmed by the work which Cameron had received at a discount, which they considered a conflict of interest because he was CEO. So Cameron basically wanted creative cutting edge work, which he felt was less likely in this corporatized structure. And this was a really hard spot to be in because digital domain came into being because of Cameron. Then suddenly a board is in charge. Ross wanted to turn it also into a production company, but Cameron already had a production company, Lightstorm. And so Cameron and Winston walk, Ross stays back, and Cameron would go on to use Weta Digital, which is Peter Jackson's special effects house for Avatar. Michael Bay bought Digital Domain in 2006, and it would win an Oscar again that year for Benjamin Button. 
By the summer of 1998, though Cameron has separated from Linda Hamilton, at some point in this period, he begins to see Susie Amos, who played who plays uh, Rose's granddaughter Lizzie in the movie in Titanic. They had met on set in Nova Scotia, and according to many people who were on set, had been sweet on each other. And once he was separated from Hamilton, they began to date. Jim Cameron also goes back underwater. He packages a return to Titanic with a plan to do a trip to the sunken German warship, the Bismarck. Uh, With this deal, he does with Disney and also is planning to test out a 3D camera he's been co-developing. There was a brief odd era of 3D in the 1950s, another in the 1980s, but really what Cameron is doing in the late 90s and early 2000s in terms of experimenting with 3D is a big deal. He worked with his brother Mike on ROVs to go into the wreck, funded them himself, and three years and one million dollars each for Jake and Elwood, obviously named after the Blues Brothers later. He had these triumphs of miniaturization, something I'm sure Robert Ballard would appreciate, with internal batteries and data sent back through a fiber optic cable, the width of a human hair. Now, I do want to say two things. One, I think it's very telling and powerful that coming off of the success of Titanic, and we'll talk about it next week, but, you know, biggest box office uh, numbers of all time at that point, billions of dollars worldwide, 11 Oscars, the level of fame and success that Cameron achieves, and he could have done anything, could have made any movie he wanted at that moment. And instead, he chooses to go back to Titanic. And I think if you're a Titanic person, which you most likely are listening to this podcast, and we all know I am to the point of illness, <laughs> um, that I <laughs> I think it's it's telling. And I think that we as Titanic people should feel a great sense of um, being a kindred spirit with Jim Cameron because he obviously is obsessed with the ship in the same same ways that we are and feels that magnetic and unmistakable pull to study the ship and its passengers and the wreck. And he's a total nerd for it, just like we all are, which I think is is incredible. And the facts speak to that. It's one of the reasons why I would absolutely love to be able to meet or talk to him one day. I also be recommend going back and listening to my Titanic on film episode that I did on Ghosts of the Abyss. I actually am thinking about re-releasing it in the feed alongside this so that uh, it's a can serve as sort of a companion piece. If you haven't listened to it yet, I go into pretty great detail about the 2001 expedition that Cameron does with Bill Paxton, John Lynch, Ken Marshall, and this team, and they're back aboard the Keldish to do a series of dives in 2001. It's incredible footage that comes out of this, and it turns into the 2003 
3D documentary, Ghosts of the Abyss, and my episode on that one. I'm actually really, really proud of. I put a lot of work into it and learned uh, a lot I didn't know about Cameron at that point. Putting together the Ghosts of the Abyss episode is probably really what got into my head is like a little worm of of you need to do these 97 episodes and a and a Jim Cameron episode soon because I I just was having so much fun uh, delving into his life and so I think doing that episode is what sped these episodes along by the time that the 2001 expedition to Titanic was over Cameron had spent 330 hours down at Titanic more time sort of on Titanic, so to speak, than Captain Smith had spent. I want to take a minute here to explore what Rebecca Keegan calls Jim the guy, as in Jim Cameron, the man, apart from the reputation you hear of of Jim Cameron on set. One story from the Titanic set is that there was one construction worker that fell backwards off of a beam and needed an emergency splenectomy. It was one of the only injuries that was on set. You'll hear all these, you know, tales of dangerous, the dangerous sets on Titanic. They they actually weren't, and we'll go into that next week. There were very few injuries. But in this one injury where someone needed to get to the ER, it was the movie medic under the instruction of Jim Cameron that got him to the hospital really quickly and got him the care that he needed. And there was actually a Time magazine story that ran when a cameraman died driving home from a 19-hour workday on the film Pleasantville. Time ran this piece on Hollywood's, quote, sweatshop-style work practices with a photo of Cameron. Uh, this is ridiculous and uh, strange that um, he had absolutely no connection to that incident, but he was held up as this example of work practices. But his his commitment to safety is actually really paramount. And we'll again, we'll talk about that a little bit next week. Also, in terms of Jim the Guy, there is a series of stories from the director Guillermo del Toro, who is a, a great friend of Jim Cameron's. They met at Ron Perlman's 4th of July party in the 90s. That's a great 90s tidbit. And this is when del Toro was trying to get his first film, Kronos, released in the United States. The financing of it had literally left him with no money to eat. And so he met Cameron. And after that, he had a place to stay when he was in L.A. He would stay at Cameron's guest house in Malibu. They became fast friends. They were both bachelors at that time. They'd order takeout and watch movies. They went to a revival of 2001, A Space Odyssey at the Cinema Dome. And Del Toro's father was actually kidnapped in Guadalajara around this time because he was viewed as a wealthy Hollywood person now. Miramax would go on to release his movie Mimic. And back home in Mexico, there was this idea that he was suddenly this Hollywood millionaire. So Cameron actually loaned Del Toro the money he needed for a hostage negotiator. I also found out that Cameron's favorite movie is The Wizard of Oz. He says it's a perfect movie. And I think that's that makes sense. The practical effects in that film, it makes sense that he would admire them. He married Susie Amos in 2000. It would be his fifth marriage and she'd been a model with Ford, had done some films, um, is a very good actress, just was not very well known. She had one son from a previous marriage. She always brought her son to the set of Titanic when they filmed the present day scenes in Nova Scotia and Cameron's 
child Josephine was on set at the time too, so they would bond over that. They also bonded over a spirit of adventure. She you know, flies planes. She's a very adventurous spirit, a very strong and vibrant person. Bill Paxton later said, quote, I could tell Jim was sweet on her. I mentioned earlier, they would go on to have three children of their own, Claire, Quinn, and Rose. (laughs) Love that. They have now been married for almost 22 years. And people, friends of his say that despite what it looks like with the five marriages, he's actually a very introspective person, self-actualized person, and really respects women and all of his former wives. So again, presenting both sides of a person. That's that's what I do. In 2000, he approached Energia, a privately run Russian space program, about going up in the Mir space station and filming in 3D, but this was shut down due to lack of funding. He wanted to work with NASA at one point and go on the International Space Station. Of course he did, because he's James Cameron and uh, There's no frontier he's not going to consider, but it would have required 18 months away from home. And like I just said, he had a very young, growing family at this point. Also, there was the Columbia disaster uh, around this time, and that tightened what NASA was even willing to do, especially with civilians. He has also served, though, as a member of the NASA Advisory Council, uh, an individual citizen board that offers input to the NASA administrator. He has served as a sort of motivational speaker for scientists and engineers. He dipped his toes briefly into television in 2000 with Dark Angel, but it faded out after a second season. At an Earth Day event in Santa Barbara in 2000, he was quoted as saying, we're all doomed, but on the positive side, we created this impending doom ourselves with our brains, with our technology, and we can damn well un." create it. May 27th, 2002, finally gets his expedition to the Bismarck that had been postponed because of September 11th, back when he was on the expedition for Ghosts of the Abyss. I've got some uh, Texas winds kicking up while I record today, too. I apologize if any of those pop on. Between 2001 and 2004, he spent seven months at sea and went on to 41 deep sea sub dives and even bought his own submarines. In 2003, he makes Aliens of the Deep to investigate the ocean's hydrothermal vents. Another nod to Robert Ballard and parallels Robert Ballard. The vents are a site of a unique ecosystem of organisms that don't require sunlight to live. Cameron posits the theory, which is supported by astrobiologists, that the vents provide a plausible idea of what life beyond Earth might look like, perhaps on Europa, a moon of Jupiter believed to have liquid water oceans underneath the icy surface. This bioluminescent flora and fauna influenced his designs for Avatar. And quick note, I, in preparation for this episode, I listened to so many interviews uh, on podcasts that he's appeared on, YouTube interviews, basically everything he's appeared on over the last, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 years. And in a very recent podcast interview, uh, he was talking about uh, Europa, talking about space exploration, and I am and and some pretty heavy physics. And I am here to tell you that he absolutely knows his stuff. He's completely 
well read uh, on those topics as well. So as Rebecca Keegan points out so well, quote, by 2005, Cameron had devoted seven of his middle life years, potentially a director's most productive, to the discovery of new places and new technologies rather than to making movies. But he eventually returns to movie making with Avatar, which would be the perfect culmination in an endeavor of his art, his love for science fiction, and his development of movie making technology. The key, I think, to Avatar is that it's original. It's a science fiction fantasy that is original, and it's not based on a comic book, a novel, or anything any previously existing property. He actually wrote the first treatment back in 1996 when he was working on Titanic because, as we've discussed, he it's almost like he always has to have two projects going, you know, one in the daytime and one at night that is something that is is for the future. And one of Cameron's paintings in the late 70s actually is of this tall blue woman in this field of magenta grass. You can Google it. And it's a seems to be a pretty direct through line. I think a lot of these ideas fermented in his brain for decades. Years before, actually, at Digital Domain, he'd written a digital manifesto that included ideas for something called performance capture. Basically, this idea of a data suit sending information about the actor's physical movements to a workstation, and then it's inserted into a synthetic environment. An artist would then use software to turn these actions and motions and performances into a character. In the 90s, some video games were experimenting with this. It didn't look great, but it would be Gollum in Lord of the Rings. Ding, ding, ding. Peter Jackson, who had admired Cameron's work, that showed the world really what was possible when it came to you know, motion performance capture. It was not as well executed in the Polar Express. There's another example from that period just because of that's a weird relationship to the Uncanny Valley, that movie. And it was controversial with Jar Jar Binks in Star Wars movies. And filmmakers working strictly in the fantasy realm tend to have a lot more luck with making this work. Again, avoiding the realm of the uncanny valley was relatively successful as a technology in movies like king kong pirates of the caribbean by 2007 motion capture was widespread and james cameron has a lot to do with that back in may of 2005 fox agreed to a 10 million dollar development budget for writing the script for avatar and a year of designing characters and creatures and constructing a virtual studio so that landau and cameron and john landau comes on to produce this could test run this motion capture could create what they called the terrain, these studios where it really is just physical things like ramps and risers that actors run on. And then, like I said, that information is sent into software and that becomes motion capture. So it was a sort of proof of concept process at this point. The initial footage was terrible. Cameron admits it, that it looked like a bad 
video game from the 1980s. Industrial Light and Magic worked on 37 seconds of footage. It took months and months. Fox was wowed, but the movie would need 2,500 CG shots. <laughs> So it was a daunting, a daunting task. Fox hated the script initially, and Chernin actually drove to Cameron's house at one point to let him know that they would be passing. And Cameron went to Disney, offered up the project. Disney showed interest, and once they were on board, Fox miraculously reconsidered. USC linguist Paul Frommer created the Navi language. Obviously, Avatar is about a group of people that live on a planet called Pandora, called the Navi. And this language mixed Polynesian and African dialects. CG scenes make up 60% of the film. If you've seen Avatar, you know this. The cast wore lycra suits covered in markers that were recognized by 102 cameras on the warehouse ceiling and wore skull caps that had tiny cameras that imaged their faces. Cameron, I love this story, actually took the actors to Hawaii, to the rainforest, to not only to shoot footage that would be kind of reference footage, but also to try and give the cast kind of a sense of wonder and beauty of the feel of the terrain he was going for as he created Pandora. He wanted them to have those kind of magical moments in the forest all the way back to when he was a kid. You know, that makes me think that there is this through line of what of those moments of wildness of if you want to be creative and you want to put your intellect to good use you also need to physically move and physically be in places and physically have these moments of inspiration that seems to be a big theme for James Cameron he had people like Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson stopping by the set to see his technology he wore a cap called Head MFR in Charge, and he films Avatar, this massive undertaking, this movie that looks like nothing that had come before it, with you know, no major stars except for Sigourney Weaver coming back uh, to work with James Cameron. And he blows Titanic's box office out of the water. He once again comes up for air with the most successful movie of all time. <laughs> I recently uh, rewatched Avatar. I hadn't seen it in years. I understand why it is the subject of a fair amount of ridicule in the film criticism community. I think a lot of people don't understand it or don't understand that it does stand the test of time. I think it being the first of its sort of kind in a lot of ways has made its legacy complicated. And I have heard a lot of critics joke, you know, do we really need three sequels? What is Cameron doing? But I think Cameron always shows us that he knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> and the box office often proves that. Avatar, uh, as I'm saying, has a very mixed reputation, but it remains one of the top 10 movies of all time that has an original story. I think, and this goes back to my opening comments, it's got an earnest, innocent 
storytelling kind of feel, much like Titanic, I think sometimes we as a society become very cynical and we forget that a lot of people want those stories told simply so that they can immerse themselves in a concept simply, you know, that that human emotion should be earnest and innocent. And I don't know that my thoughts are fully formed on my analysis of Avatar. I think I need to see Avatar 2, 3, and 4 to have a full picture of how I feel about Avatar. But I appreciate Avatar. And I am probably going to be one of the first people in the seats of the theater in December of this year, 2022, when Avatar 2 comes out. So Avatar nominated for nine Academy Awards. It wins art direction, cinematography, special effects, but it does not win director or best picture. That actually goes to James Cameron's former wife, Catherine Bigelow, for The Hurt Locker. In 2010, there's really a shift into Jim Cameron as activist and environmentalist. In 2010, there is an offshore oil drilling rig in the Gulf that explodes. You probably remember this. Killing 11 and causing a massive oil spill that threatened the entire Gulf Coast. Cameron contacted BP, offered the use of his personal subs to help they turned him down. But Cameron still convened a meeting of 20 plus scientists and engineers to brainstorm the leak and how it might be fixed. He appeared on CNN explaining the engineering and how this had happened and what this crisis was way better than any elected official could at the time. In 2012, there is one more big underwater event for Cameron, a huge accomplishment. I mentioned it at the onset of this episode. It is his historic expedition to the Mariana Trench's lowest point, which lies 6.83 miles below the ocean's surface. This was in March of 2012. He piloted the Deep Sea Challenger, which was the little, well, it's not little, but the sphere-shaped sub. And he went to the ocean's deepest point where he collected samples and documented the experience in a high-res 3D for which he's known, of course, for. I highly, highly recommend that if you are interested in hearing more from James Cameron, you should watch. There's so many documentaries between... 2000 and now (laughs) that involve him and Titanic or him and deep sea exploration. There is James Cameron's Expedition Bismarck. There is the James Cameron Deep Sea Challenger 3D with National Geographic that I just mentioned. There is Titanic The Final Word with James Cameron. There is Titanic 20 Years Later, which is more a focus on looking at the movie 20 years after it came out. There is obviously Ghosts of the Abyss and Aliens of the Deep. There is also James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction, which admittedly I have not watched that yet, but will be soon. So (laughs) before we leave this segment, though, I really would be remiss if I did not say that the parallels between Jim Cameron 
and his relationship to Titanic and ocean exploration. The parallels with Robert Ballard are uncanny. The development of their equipment, things like the ROVs, their craving of this exploration of Titanic's interiors, their interest in shipwrecks, their focus on sustainability and conservation of oceans. It's, it's, they're very closely aligned in their stories and they're not that far apart in age either. Honestly, I'd love to see them, hear them in a room together. I hope that there is, you know, one of the major podcasts or perhaps Nat Geo or Discovery could do this, a special that, you know, really gets them in a room together for a long conversation. There is a segment in the Titanic 20 years later, I believe it is, that has Jim Cameron and Bob Ballard together going through one of the museums. And that was great to see. But I, gosh, would I love to hear a long form conversation between the two of them about their experiences with Titanic, with other shipwrecks. They've both been to the Bismarck. It's Anyway, that's just <laughs> me sharing how much I nerd out on this and want to know more. Recent Jim Cameron. Like I said at the beginning, there is this tendency to leave his biography at Avatar, to say, hey, there is this you know monumental achievement with Titanic going down to the wreck. He becomes an explorer. And then his vanity project becomes Avatar and he sails off onto some <laughs> horizon. And that's all we're supposed to know about James Cameron. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. Since 2013, he's actually been living at least part of the time in New Zealand on a walnut farm. <laughs> he has said that the theme of sustainability that runs through the Avatar film series also extends to his very personal life. He and his wife Susie bought the farm about 90 minutes drive from Wellington, New Zealand, and they spend and I think they're living there full time right now um, since COVID. But at this point in 2013, we're always spending at least part of the year there with their children. And in 2013, he said he was putting in 650 walnut trees and also tree other tree crops, grains, produce. He says, quote, I think of it as an experimental station to look at various sustainable agricultural approaches. So that's something that he is incredibly interested in. He has spoken out a lot recently about New Zealand's sort of slogan of we're a country of 5 million people. So we are a team of 5 million people. And that is something that has moved him and affected him. And he seems to really like living there and really urges the United States <laughs> to and the whole world to take on a similar attitude and approach in terms of sustainability, community, and taking care of the environment of being a caretaker, not a taker. And obviously these themes run through Avatar and a lot of his films, and I'm sure will run through the Avatar sequels. He, of course, is a native of Canada, but he says that his life in New Zealand feels like closing the loop, to quote him, after he spent summers on his grandfather's farm in southern Ontario and remember him as a little boy running through the wilderness in Canada. And I think that it sure seems this way that he's found this loop and kind of a full circle experience in New Zealand. 
because I don't think that Cameron would be Cameron without that wildness, without that physicality. And he also said that uh, this was an, an interview in 2013. So his, his kids were pretty young. He said that he would just let them roam around their land with walkie talkies and experience that wildness. And I will say, as a parent of kids that I'm raising in suburbia, <laughs> it's, it's, um, I am very envious of that. And there is a privilege check to be had on that that he has obviously the resources to raise his children that way, to invest in those things. But I think that when you have the kind of money that James Cameron obviously has at this point, that that is a responsibility to spend some of your money that way towards sustainability and environmental causes. So you could look at it, you know, on both sides of of that privilege check, so to speak. He also has been vegan for the past six years and has been incredibly vocal about it. He has supported his wife Susie's work with a school she founded called Muse. It actually is a global online school now as well, but it started as a private day school in California that she founded with her sister. The cafeteria for this school has actually been named the greenest restaurant in the country. It is completely vegan and the school has solar panels. The school is green. It has a goal of having the lowest carbon footprint possible. It's pretty incredible. And I've listened to several interviews with him and his wife recently where they talk about their road to veganism and what it does for the planet. And I would urge you to maybe give it a, maybe look that up and <laughs> give it a few minutes and listen to one of their interviews or, or read a description of her book. She wrote a book called One Meal a Day in which she urges everyone to vow to do at least one vegan meal a day and, and goes over what impact that would have on the global environment. So that's something you're at all interested in. I would urge you to look into their activism with that. I was surprised to find it and, I don't know, sort of inspired by it. It's always, veganism is always something I've sort of circled around. It makes me want to circle closer to it. So his uh, sets in New Zealand for the Avatar sequels are the greenest sets in history from what I read. Like I said, the first sequel is slated for this December in 2022. And to note, he got Kate Winslet back in the water. She, back in 2018 and 19, filmed her part in the sequels. She spent a lot of time underwater and actually broke Tom Cruise's record for holding, for an actor holding their breath for the longest time on an underwater set. And she held her breath for seven minutes. <laughs> Nothing, I mean, everything I know about Kate Winslet, this doesn't surprise me. Her dedication to roles, I think, is is un, is unmatched. So he is an advocate for the exploration and protection of what many consider a final frontier on Earth, the deep ocean, a place that is revealing itself to be crucial as a component in regulating climate. It's called the Twilight Zone, the largest biomass on the planet. This largest mass migration of animal life on the planet goes up and down every day to the surface to feed and then back down into the deep, deep depths. 
This acts as a giant carbon pump that's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and taking it down into the ocean. He has been down to this twilight zone. He's seen jellyfish two meters in diameter, rare species of squid. He is enamored of this deep part of the ocean. Quote, humans have an almost perfect record for going into new environments and basically destroying them, he said recently. The fisheries of the world have exhausted their resources, and now they're looking deeper into these deep areas of the ocean, which is dangerous because we don't fully yet understand the Twilight Zone's role in the global ecosystem. He says, quote, I tend to be pessimistic about political systems and about human systems in general. He added, but I'm optimistic about human beings. And that quote sums up Titanic, doesn't it? It sums up most of his movies. And while I hear many critics joke about the simultaneous filming of the Avatar sequels, like I mentioned, I honestly, (laughs) I'm drinking the Kool-Aid at this point. Of course, he's devoted himself to this Avatar world. Of course he has, because he sees a chance to spread this message, this caretaker, not taker, this environmental message. He has kept the plot of these sequels tight to the chest. No one really knows, but I have I have a feeling maybe it has something to do with him having created some beings that live this deep underwater. Titanic took him underwater, but his heart was already there, I think. And the experience of it, of diving in these subs, of exploring this place that is inarguably a frontier, it has shaped his psyche in ways he probably never imagined. As Rebecca Keegan says, he also has this crazy ability to, quote, tune out a Greek chorus of naysayers and just as amazingly to convince lots of rational people to join him in pursuit of his daunting visions. And whatever, there's a lot of things you can say about Jim Cameron, but it's a very rare quality of a human being to be able to do that. He is someone who has been contentious, defiant. To some, I'm sure he has harbored ill will. James Horner thanked him in his Oscar speech in 1998 for, quote, being in a good mood the day he played him. My heart will go on because I think him being in a good mood was rare. I'm sure Jim Cameron has had many bad days, just like we all do, but I can tell you that I tried to keep my reading of him confined to academic pursuits. I tried to work to bring you a straightforward and very technical assessment of him as a director, because Titanic obviously is such an achievement in direction, but I found a person there instead, someone who, although mostly private about his personal life, through even his most public actions, has contributed to scientific scientific and environmentally focused endeavors that can and will help the planet. Someone who jokes and interviews and seems, despite all you've heard to the contrary, quite in tune with humility and quite nerdy and just silly at times. And he seems in tune with mortality and his role as a steward, not just to his own family, but to the world. Someone who has been strangely and often eerily prescient in his writing on world events, environmental concerns, the dangers inherent in the very technology he also embraces. James Cameron is a hippie, guys. He's a vegan, blue woman painting, sci-fi nerd with a temper (laughs) who creates worlds that we want to dive into and live within. I guess if you want to join my James Cameron cult, (laughs) let me know. 
shoot me an email. <laughs> Grew up on steady diet of science fiction. In high school, I, I took a bus to school an hour each way every day. And uh, I was always absorbed in a book, science fiction book, which took my mind to other worlds and satisfied this, uh, in, in, a, in a narrative form, this insatiable sense of curiosity that I had. And, and uh, you know, that curiosity also manifested itself in, in um, the fact that whenever I wasn't in school, I was, I was out in the woods hiking and taking samples uh, of frogs and snakes and bugs and pond water and bringing it back, looking at it under the microscope. I was, you know, I was a real science geek, but it was all about trying to understand understand the world, understand the, the limits of, of possibility. All right. That concludes part one of our journey back to 1997. This episode did quite a bit of legwork for the coming weeks. Next week, I will be doing an episode on the making of the movie, everything from the filming of the present day scenes in Nova Scotia and the infamous chowder poisoning to all of the sets in Rosarito, Mexico, to casting every little part of James Cameron's obsession with the details behind the scenes. There is so much. I actually may break that into two parts that post a couple of days apart to sort of give you a little breathing room in between. And then in February, I have an episode I'm really excited about, which is the feminism of Rose Dewitt Bucator. I'm going to break down the feminist narrative in Titanic. I'm going to break down a little bit of film history for you. And also we'll take a look at some of James Cameron's other female characters as well. And then this little series will end uh, in mid-February with just a look at the film Titanic in pop culture and how it resonates and where. I'm really excited about all of this. This year, 2022, marks the 25th anniversary of James Cameron's Titanic, which is hard for me to believe. I was... 25 years ago, a 13-year-old in a movie theater seat. Well, I guess came out in December, so still got about 11 months <laughs> to get there. I wanted to go ahead and do these episodes because, quite frankly, I couldn't wait. I will probably re-release these episodes at the end of the year when we actually hit that December mark for the 25th anniversary, because I'm sure there will be a lot going on to commemorate that in pop culture. I'm hoping that I will be able to get someone from the making of the movie to come on the pod in December of this year to commemorate that 25th mark. I have high hopes, so we shall see. Very importantly, I want to thank my new Patreon members. I want to thank Dana from the Ricardo Project podcast. I've mentioned her podcast actually on here before because it is excellent. And if you are an I Love Lucy person as I am, or just a you know, TV history person, just pop culture person, I highly recommend that you go check that out. Thank you, Dana, for your support. And I've loved chatting with you and getting to know you on social media. It's so fun. This podcast has brought me so many new, wonderful connections. I also want to thank Lee Hollyfield. Thank you for also becoming a new Unsinkable VIP. And I want to thank Anna Bailey. Thank you for joining the Patreon on Unsinkable as well. Guys, this is 
because I don't take it lightly. It means a lot to me. I very much appreciate you. And I'm very excited about this month's bonus episode. I did a poll and overwhelmingly what won is me doing kind of a a talk through uh, my experience at the Titanic Museum attraction in Pigeon Forge this past summer. And I'm going to talk through... um, my experience, my family's experience, and what some of the artifacts are, uh, what my (laughs) general thoughts are about what they're doing with the museum attractions. So that will post on January 31st. And if you've you know, thought about joining Patreon, definitely go take a look at the Patreon feed. And that is at patreon.com slash unsinkable pod. Thank you guys so much. You can always reach me at unsinkablepod at gmail.com on Insta at unsinkablepod on Twitter at unsinkablepod where there's definitely a big conversation growing. I'm enjoying doing Twitter, which I did not anticipate. (laughs) And also I am going to start up a bookshop affiliate link soon. And if you're not familiar with what bookshop is, it's basically a website. It's bookshop.org that supports independent booksellers. So if there's a book that I mention on the pod or I put in my show notes, which these show notes will have quite a few, and also my website will have them listed as well, then you can go to my bookshop affiliate link and purchase the book through my affiliate page. And I actually will get 10% of that sale for kind of bringing you to the book and to bookshop.org. And then an independent bookseller will obviously get the rest of it and it supports them. So it supports podcasts, creators, and it also supports independent booksellers. So that's it's actually, I think, a great model, a great system, and I'm excited to try that out. I will be posting a James Cameron book list on there, and the link for that is bookshop.org backslash shop backslash unsinkable pod. And I will have, of course, that link in my show notes. I'll have it on my Insta. It'll it'll be available if you're looking for it. Absolutely. So if you're interested in any books that I mentioned, please check that out. I think that, again, that's it's something I'm really excited to try. And lastly, I am asked not only quite a bit what I'm reading in terms of Titanic, but I'm also asked quite a bit what podcasts I am listening to. So I did just want to mention kind of what my podcast playlist looks like right now, Um, besides the Ricardo Project, which is on there weekly. (laughs) Also, the History Cache, which is, I've mentioned before, but it is fantastic. If you are into shipwrecks, there is a great episode about the Edmund Fitzgerald. There are just a ton of great episodes. She does one to two very high quality, very well produced history episodes per month. And I really one of the best that I've come across in years of listening to podcasts. And there's also a podcast I've gotten into recently called Family Ghosts, which is it's kind of hard to describe what it is. It's a hybrid of history, kind of folklore, uh, and it's not really about ghosts. It's more tales of families and uh, traumas in families or mysteries in families or just stories that are interesting to tell. I'm doing a terrible job at making it sound good, but I promise it's moving. It's so well produced. The host, he has just this innate ability to guide you through a story. I actually found it because I'm working on research on the shipwreck of the slave ship Clotilda, and they did a really amazing multiple-part series about it and its descendants. And so 
that episode or series of episodes might be a great entree into it if you want to try Family Ghosts, but I cannot recommend it enough. And then also, if you're into some real ghost stories, I've been listening to Danny Robbins on the BBC and his show Uncanny, where he just goes to investigate weird occurrences that people have written into him about. And it's super creepy if you're into that sort of thing. But also you learn a little bit of British history and it's just weirdly soothing. Um, Danny Robbins is very soothing. So there you go. There's a few that are cycling through as I go about my week lately. All of my sources, like I said, will be either in my show notes or on the blog on my website. This is, um, I always try to do a good job of mentioning my sources, but this week I think it's particularly important and there are a lot of them. All right. Until next week when we dive, don't pardon the pun, don't pardon the pun, right into the filming and the making of James Cameron's Titanic. This is what I've been waiting for. I'm stoked. Have a great week. Bye, guys. <laughs>